Hello and welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy and I am your host today. And this week, host actually means something because we, we have a guest. And it's the first guest this podcast has had. It's a very special guest. And I, and I have to say I'm very excited. Uh, he's a Nobel Prize winner. He's well-known. And he's one of the most brilliant economists I've ever met. I've met four Nobel economists, and, and, uh, and he is the, the most brilliant of them. Sure, it's a low bar these days to say that an economist is brilliant, but this guy I think you'll agree is. And I am delighted to welcome to the program Milton Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thank you for sharing your insights today. Uh, my first question f- about inflation for you is, is inflation transitory? Unfortunately, I cannot bring you any good news about inflation. Ouch. Well, fortunately, I wasn't really looking for, for necessarily good news on inflation, Dr. Friedman. I really, you know, what I want to get to the bottom of here is, is what's causing this. And, you know, where we hear that, uh, a, a lot of this uh, inflationary uptick that we've had is due to COVID and and to supply constraints and, and things of that nature. And I just sort of wonder what you think about that proposition. Inflation in the United States is made in Washington and nowhere else. It's a printing press phenomenon. Right. It's a printing press phenomenon. You are singing my song. That's exactly right. If you, if you produce too much of something, you know, off the printing press, its price tends to go down. And, and, and so I think that it's because that printing press has been going, right, that, that you know, because we've increased the quantity of money, you know, M2, which, which you named M2, we've increased M2 some 37% since the beginning of this crisis. It's not at all surprising that the price level is much higher than it was at the beginning of the crisis. So it's made in Washington. It's a printing press press phenomenon. But the question is, then why is it that governments do that? There are fundamentally three reasons, in my opinion, why we have experienced inflation and why it is a threat. The first, and by far the most important, is an order to pay for government spending. Okay, okay, and I don't want to cut you off from from the other two things, and maybe we'll get back to them. But you know that sort of begs the question, doesn't it? You know why why so much government spending? And it's not like this is the first time we've had lots of government spending, right? This has happened sort of repeatedly, I think, over the last. You know, we've had lots of crises. Every time for quite a period, there was a threat of unemployment or unemployment started to rise. There was a strong tendency by government to say, we've got to do something about this. We have to print more money. We have to spend more money. We have to stimulate the economy. The result of which has been to create an increased quantity of money that in the first instance has had some favorable effects on employment. But only temporarily, only so long as you could fool the people. But Dr. Friedman, it worked. You know, printing the money uh, 
spending lots of money and printing the money got us out of the uh, the, the 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 horrible contraction of the economy that uh, that was caused by the shutdowns related to COVID. So what's not to like? An analogy that in some ways is much closer to the problem of inflation. It's a very literal analogy, but also something of a medical analogy is alcoholism. The thing about alcoholism is that when you go out on a toot, the good effects come first and the bad effects only come the next morning when you have the hangover. Now that's exactly the way it is with inflation. When you start inflating, the good effects come first. After all, the government's printing money, everybody thinks he's richer, he's got all these pieces of paper. And initially it does have that effect. It makes business good, it expands output. It's only after a while, when it works its way through to inflation, that the bad effects come later and you then have inflation. I really like that analogy, and uh, and I have to also say uh, that I really like your usage of the word toot in that context. I don't think I've ever heard that, but I think I'm going to start using that now. But so if the bad effects come later, how much later are we talking about? I mean, obviously, I think now we've got some idea of what the timing has worked out to be in this instance. You know, from the beginning of, of COVID, it's been... You know, and, and, and the massive increase in the money supply that happened starting in March of 2020, um, it's been now 21 months or so. Does that strike you as, as roughly the right time frame when we should be starting to see these bad effects uh, the way we have seen them? And, and what exactly is the mechanic? Why does it not immediately happen that when you increase the money supply, when you increase the spending, you, you don't immediately get an increase in prices, because after all, the monetarist equation, MV equals PQ, sort of implies uh, an instantaneity of it, right? That, that one immediately causes the other. Why don't those things happen at the same time? And, and I realize that was sort of two questions, but maybe if you could uh, sort of answer both of them. Suppose the government first prints money and spends it to pay for its expenses. To begin with, the people who find themselves doing better business, don't know, what's, don't know what the explanation is. Government is paying more money, its employees have better salaries, they're coming to the store and buying more goods. The storekeeper is delighted to sell them at the same prices as before. Each man thinks this is something special happening to him. The shoe manufacturer says, ah, look, I can sell more shoes, the demand for shoes is going up. He doesn't recognize that what's really happening is that demand is going up everywhere. And then not only is the demand for shoes going up, but he's going to have to pay more to get labor. He's going to have to get pay more to get leather. He's going to have to pay more to produce his product. But when that shows up, when after a while he finds out that his costs are up, then he suddenly discovers that he has to raise his prices to make both ends meet. And that's why on the average in the United States over the past hundred years, an increase in the quantity of money has taken about five or six months to affect people's spending. The first thing that happened is people just have bigger bank accounts. Then it takes them a little while to realize that and they start spending it. And then it's another 12 to 18 months before that works through into prices. So on the average, 
over the past hundred years, there's, and in the Britain it's been for 200 years, I say 100 years because that's as far back as our data go in the United States, there's been about a two-year interval between a more rapid increase in the quantity of money on the one hand and the inflationary effects of it on the other. Okay, well, that, that's sort of fascinating. You said about two years, but you said five to six months and then 12 to 18, so you're talking about you know, between 17 months uh, and and two years. And so 21 months would sort of be right in the middle of that. In fact, probably the, the real upswing, aside from the used cars thing and, and the real one-offs, but the, you know, the main part of the upswing seems to be, you know, right on schedule, it, it would seem like to me. Well, that's, that's interesting. So let me, um, let me ask about uh, some of the things that the government is, is doing that the administration is trying to do. And I want to talk about the Build Back Better plan. That's currently a little bit stalled in Congress. But, but one of the things the administration has said to us is that we really should pass the Build Back Better uh, bill because, among other things, um, it will help expand supply. And so this bill will bring down inflation. And so I wonder if there's, if there's any uh, truth to that, if there's any, any thoughts you would have about the idea that, you know, by spending lots of money to increase the supply side, we might uh, actually improve the inflationary backdrop. It's true. Anything that increases output will tend to hold down prices. And so it's very common for people to say, well, the real source of inflation is that our productivity has not been increasing as much as it should. Or to say that the real cure for inflation is to increase productivity. Now, productivity is an enormously important phenomenon. From the point of view of our standard of life, of how well we live, there's nothing that's more important. If we can get a rate of real growth of 3% instead of 2%, that will make a great difference over a period of time. And I don't doubt that one of our national problems is a fall-off in the growth in productivity. But from the point of view of inflation, it's the wrong order of magnitude. It would be a tremendous achievement to raise the average rate of growth of real output in this country from 3% a year to 4% a year. That would be a 33 and a third percent increase. It would be a dramatic change. But it would reduce the rate of inflation by one percentage point a year. And from that point of view, the possible variations in the quantity of money are much greater than the variations in output and productivity. So from the point of view of inflation, productivity is very much of a bit actor on the stage. The lead, the, the hero or the villain as you wish it, is not productivity, but what happens to the quantity of money. All right. So the quantity of money is is obviously the most Im- important thing, but but clearly these supply constraints still are, are having some effect. They're raising costs. We're getting some cost push uh, inflation here, right? I mean that's that's sort of what I what I hear tell. It certainly is something the Federal Reserve is uh, is very uh, uh, attentive to, would you agree? 
it's, a, it's another example of the people who produce the inflation finding this, trying to find scapegoats for their own deficiencies. Of course the inflation will respond to monetary restraint. There is no such thing as cost-push inflation, except in the form of the delayed effect of monetary inflation. If you have a monetary inflation that starts to push up prices, it tends to hit retail and wholesale prices first, the prices you and I pay. It's only later that it works its way through costs. But then costs fall behind prices, and there's a makeup period. And during that period, you have what looks like cost push inflation. This is really fascinating stuff. I, I really uh, enjoy the opportunity to, to you know, slaughter some sacred cows here and, and, uh, and, and hear your views about some of these topics. So let's, let's, um, let's talk about how we get out of this situation, how we resolve this situation. You know, recently the Federal Reserve um, has started to, has decided to accelerate its taper and eventually to, to hike interest rates uh, to, to, you know, control inflation. And, and we've started to see other central banks around the world uh, reverse what has been really a multi-decade tendency to lower interest rates and to turn around and, and raise them again. And, uh, and, and I assume that you're going to, to say that, that, uh, that you agree that central banks are doing the right thing in trying to raise interest rates. Their mistake has almost always been caused by confusing their function, by thinking that they had something to do with interest rates instead of recognizing that their real function was to control the quantity of money. Okay, yeah, you, you got me. Uh, that's a distinction I'm always trying to draw myself when I am talking about what uh, the central bank ought to do. I always remind listeners that um, you know interest rates are what follows the the change in, or at least this used to be the case anyway, that the Federal Reserve, the central bank, would adjust the quantity of money, and that would cause interest rates to move, and it really has only been in the last you know, decade and a half or so that central banks have decided that, in fact, they wanted to move interest rates and so have sort of divorced the movement of interest rates from controlling the quantity of money. So, uh, so that's, a, that's a great reminder that, that the actual metric that what we want to focus in on is not interest rates. Um, interest rates will go where interest rates should be. Uh, the the central bank should focus on the quantity of money and controlling the quantity of money. So thank you very much for that reminder. So so then what is your prescription? I mean you're you're a Nobel laureate um, and I don't I can't think of any better person to ask for advice in our circumstance now where we have in this country we have headline inflation approaching seven percent and core inflation at around five percent. And all the median and, and, and trim mean, the broader measures also starting to head higher. You know, what is it that, that we, or by, by we, I mean government, uh, ought to be doing here to, to try to address inflation and bring it down? Unfortunately, given these mistakes, at the present time, the options open to this country are only bad options. We don't have good options. If you were sitting in at the Federal Reserve Board and deciding on monetary policy, you mustn't suppose you'd have anything good you could do. Whatever you do is bad. Given the amount that you have now of money you have now that has now been pumped into the economy, 
You have only two bad choices. If you slow down drastically in order to try to hold back inflation, the economy will experience a recession, and it may be a fairly severe recession. Alternatively, you can say, well, we can't do that. We've got to step on the gas, keep doing what we're doing now. Then you are condemning the economy to going into another period of double-digit inflation. Two years ago, there was a choice. Now, it seems like a hangover is a coming then. Um, we Certainly, we hope that that's probably, that that's the, I guess, if you've got to choose one of those two things, we that's where we'd like to go. But uh, it also sounds like there's a period of time here where we're still going to have to deal with somewhat high prices. And should the, the uh, central bank not have the intestinal fortitude that we'd like it to have, then there's a chance that we, we could experience, we could be stuck with this level of inflation for, for some time, or maybe not if of 7% inflation, maybe 3 4 5% inflation. So, you know, the listeners um, that we have on this podcast uh, are always asking, you know, what is it that you can do? What can an ordinary person, an ordinary investor out there who is concerned about inflation, what can he do to protect himself uh, against these ravages of inflation going forward. Unfortunately, there is very, very little he can do. The, uh, uh, it's a, it's a ba- I, I hate to say this, and yet it's true. The most effective protection against inflation is high living. I mean that, unfortunately, there are no assets which you can confidently acquire with the expectation that they will provide you a hedge against inflation. On the other hand, if you buy yourself a nice house, you buy yourself a nice suit, you buy yourself a picture to hang on the wall, you are protected against the ravages for okay life? okay i want to i want to push back on that a little bit because i do think that um you know back when you were doing you know uh your work on inflation or most of your work on inflation back in the 70s that was more true than it is today i do think there are some more uh, options today than than there were but but certainly um not as many as we would like you know there are commodity futures today whereas back in the 70s um there really was not much of a of a commodities market, um, certainly that the average person could access. And there we have ETFs that, that at least will allow you to access commodities and, and to some extent, real estate and some other things. We don't have inflation futures and some other improvements, some things that we could do. Um, but but I do think that we've made at least some progress. And um, But but I, I get what you're saying, that, you know, the – we have not set up our system in such a way that, you know, we have lots of options available for, for people to hedge against inflation because it hasn't been a problem for a very long time. And I do think that that's something that we we have to resolve, we have to do better about going forward is we do need to offer more alternatives for investors so that they can protect themselves against inflation, even if it, even if it turns out that inflation that that central banks do have that intestinal fortitude that they don't just continue to print and keep inflation you know taking the second alternative that you mentioned and and continue to have it high levels of inflation it's still a risk and and investors should be able should be a, a, a there should be a way for them to to address that risk in their own lives and in their own investing other than buying a, a fancy suit or, or putting a nice picture on the wall. Well, this is, has certainly been fascinating though. And I, but I do want to start trying to wrap this up. And so I wonder if you can maybe sum up 
sort of what your main message is. And, and, and I know, you know it, I know it, I want to hear you say it, you know I want to hear you say it, I know everybody who is listening here wants to hear you say it. Dr. Friedman, will you say it? The first step toward understanding the cause of inflation is to recognize that it is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Yes, 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 yes. I've always wanted to hear you say that. I'm so proud that uh, that you could say that on the podcast. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. I'm totally with you, doctor. But always and everywhere is such a strong statement. And, and I wonder how you you feel comfortable making that such a strong, strident statement. The point that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. That proposition has been documented over and over again. We have evidence for the United States for over 100 years, for Great Britain for 200 years, for Sweden for 200 years. There has never in history been an inflation that was not accompanied by an extremely rapid increase in the quantity of money. There has never in history been an extremely rapid increase in the quantity of money without an inflation. That evidence is available for hundreds of years in many countries, and there are no exceptions. Okay, then the, then the solution, the solution then seems to be relatively straightforward, no? What measures should the government take to try to uh, Im restore economic health to the United States? And I have very little doubt about what the major measures there. But let me say first, you're not going to do it overnight. We've gotten into our present pickle because of three decades of mismanagement of the economy. And we're not going to get out of it in six months. But what you have to do is, number one, you have to move to cut down government spending, to hold down the rate of growth of government spending in dollars and to cut it in terms of purchasing power. Number two, you have to have a restrained monetary policy. Not a shock treatment, not, an over, not a real cut in the quantity of money, but to hold down and have a gradual reduction in the rate of monetary growth. Number three, you have to eliminate as many of the regulations that now bedevil the economy as you possibly can. The most important area there is the energy area. Thank you, Dr. Friedman. You know, I guess it's easier to agree on solutions uh, perhaps than to implement them, although it seems that we have trouble agreeing on solutions these days as well. But we do appreciate your guidance uh, in this matter. These are things that you've you've thought and talked about for for quite some time. Thank you, thank you for coming on the podcast. Now, obviously, that wasn't actually the real Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman passed away in 2006 at the ripe old age of, of 94. The clips that I've used here are all from several speeches that you can easily find on YouTube. And I highly encourage you to seek out the, the full clips, the, the, the many examples um, of uh, Dr. Friedman talking about inflation, but also talking about the, the capitalist system and his series, Free to Choose, um, it's, it really should be required education, and, and sadly it isn't anymore. You definitely should seek them out. I don't believe that I have misrepresented Dr. Friedman in any way. 
in my choice of clips and, and how I frame them and represent them. And, and I certainly don't mean any disrespect by, by using his words in this way. And I, I don't want anybody to, to feel, um, certainly anybody who reveres Milton Friedman in the way I do, um, I don't want anybody to feel that I, I'm being at all disrespectful. Um, I certainly haven't meant uh, meant it in that way. Indeed, quite the opposite. You know, I think I think Friedman's wisdom is is something that is desperately needed right now. Um, now more than than you know for decades, really. Um, and yet his words are are forgotten, um, and in a lot of places, uh, you know, not least being the Eccles building where the Federal Reserve meets. And, you know, it seems that economists today, many economists today feel like we've moved beyond Milton Friedman, that he was wrong and, and, and a simpleton, and we've moved beyond what, uh, what he had to say. But I, I, think that's, I think that's wrong. And I think that, um, you know, even, you know, uh, Friedman himself would, would say, you know, something along the lines of... History does repeat itself. Oh, thank you, Doctor. Thank you for, for that, that one uh, final contribution. Anyway, this, uh, this has been Sense and Sensibility. If you're listening to this and you have uh, any comments to make, um, you know, please, you can stop by our website at EnduringInvestments.com and drop me a note or send me an email at InflationGuy at EnduringInvestments.com. Um, I'm inflation underscore guy on Twitter. And um, thanks again for, for tuning in to Sense and Sensibility. I am Michael Ashen. I am the Inflation Guy, and this is the Inflation Guy podcast. Defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>